Well, it's a joy to continue our study about the sanctuary this afternoon. And this afternoon we want to uh, experience new, uh, I hope, some new ex- uh, excitement about the sanctuary doctrine. Uh, the overall title that I gave for this afternoon may have sounded a little boring, and in retrospect, I wished I could have changed it, but once you send it in, it's too late. But uh, I was given the assignment to come and to share not only about the sanctuary, but about hermeneutics. That's what they told me, principles of how to interpret the Bible, and especially the sanctuary, and especially dealing with some of those issues where people in recent times have rejected the sanctuary doctrine and the the principles of interpretation of how to how to get at that that situation but i can't bear to do that for more than an hour i've I, you know for me the sanctuary's got to be positive stuff experiential stuff and not just the theory about why it's not this other way and so the first hour together we're going to just do some more celebrating of the sanctuary. Because I believe sanctuary is not just, as I said last night, it's not just a doctrine to be believed. It's, a, it's an experience to be had. It's sanctuary life. And then for those of you that are into the, the heavy stuff of asking questions and wrestling with the whys and wherefores of the sanctuary and, and, and you want to just dig into the nuts and bolts of the principles that underlie it. You can stay the last hour. You know, and those who want to go on home and get a nap, you're, you will have uh, you will have fulfilled your Sabbath af- afternoon uh, sanctuary uh, obligations. No, not obligations. Okay. So I am subtitling this first hour together. If you just had one page of the Bible. Now, let's, let's set the scene, okay? We are looking at the signs of the times that seem to be thickening all around us, the natural disasters and the wars and all of those things which should clue us in. Time's getting short. One of these days is going to be for real. One of these days we're going to wake up and the Sunday law will be passed. And we're going to find out that there is a bounty out on our head for those who claim to believe in the Sabbath day. And one of these days there's going to be a a knock on our door with a policeman there to take you to jail because of your faith. If you were going to plan for that moment when you'd be headed off to prison and you knew they wouldn't let you take your precious Bible there and you might be able to get away with just slipping one page of the Bible that you had carefully chosen to photocopy in advance and slip into that secret pocket in your clothes, which page would you choose? Now, before you start salivating about all those wonderful promises that you want to be sure you have, I'm assuming you have all of those already in your memory. You don't need those pages, you know, the ones with John 3.16 and with the, all the, the glorious promises. You've got those stored away. And so I'm looking for a page that you would choose that has the whole story of redemption on one page in detail, not just allusions. 
And so what I'm insisting you include on that single page, now I'm making it harder, I acknowledge that, but I want to, I want to be tough on you this afternoon. Standards are high. For that one page, you'll slip in your clothes before you head off to prison in the time of trouble. It needs to have, in detail, creation and the Sabbath, the coming of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost time, his high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, the pre-advent judgment starting in 1844, the second coming of Christ, still with me, the millennium, and the new earth. All on one page in detail. Which page would you choose? Hebrews. I think Hebrews has got some pages that would have many of those. I'm not sure it would have all of them. Daniel's got some pages that would have a lot of those things. That's for sure. I don't think it would have all of them, though. Stephen's sermon, yeah, that's, that's filled with, with many of those points. I agree. But I don't think it has all of those in detail, explicitly. Yes. Revelation 12, that's a, that's a pretty vast sweep of the history of salvation, isn't it? You're right. I think, though, it doesn't have the millennium there. Doesn't have, uh, does it have creation? I don't think so. Sabbath? Yes. John 1, again, another sweeping, and this is neat to hear all these ideas of the sweeping passages of Scripture. I know of only one text that has them all, all of those that I've mentioned. Now, you could prove me wrong. If you can show me another one, I'll, I'll be the first to become a believer. But if you photocopy it right, from the right Bible, <laughs> you can get it all on one page, and it's a chapter of the Bible. And in, surprisingly enough, it's a chapter, well, you know I teach Old Testament, so you know where it's got to be from, right? It's a chapter in the Old Testament, and it's in the most unlikely book where you might find such a thing. It's the book that trips up most Christians that start reading the Bible through. They get through Genesis, ah, oh, these are great stories, the patriarchs, and they get through Exodus, man, what a fantastic God it is that led us out of Egypt. And then they get to the book of uh, Leviticus, <laughs> sanctuary, sacrifices, sacrifices, blood, 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 everywhere. And they stop reading and say, well, maybe I'll start next year. Leviticus trips up more than make it through. And most of them don't even get to the chapter I'm talking about. I'm talking about the 23rd chapter of Leviticus. Now, some of you were just headed on the tip of your tongue. I can see that you were ready to say that. If I had just one page of the Bible, or if I had just one Bible study to give to people, or if I just had one sermon to preach, this is the text I'd use. Because I believe here in this chapter, in prefiguration, in advance, God gives the whole sweep of the plan of salvation. And he encodes it, he in includes it in the actual festivals of Israel so that 
as ancient Israel every year went through this yearly round of festivals, they would in, in advance experience this whole plan of salvation that was going to be coming through. Now, uh, we have to spend just a couple minutes on hermeneutics, principles of interpretation, because we are now living after the cross, and so it's bound to come up. What do Christians do with these feasts today? Are these feasts what we should be keeping? Should we still be keeping these feasts? There are some Adventists that are vigorously promoting that and saying, if, in essence, if you're not keeping the feasts, you're not keeping all the statutes and judgments of God and that we really need to be keeping not only the weekly Sabbath but the annual feasts. And there are others that will say, if you even mention the feasts, you're Judaizing and don't even talk about them. Well, what's the truth about the observance of the feasts? Then we'll get into the, the picture, of, the beautiful picture of, of the plan of salvation here. But I, I, I guess I'd better deal with just this little hermeneutical issue. I believe that Leviticus 23 answers that question for us. And let's see how it does. Turn with me to Leviticus 23, to this great chapter that summarizes the fest, God's festival calendar in the Old Testament times. Uh, when you open a book and read the introduction, do you uh, usually expect that you'll turn the next page and you'll find a second introduction? Books don't usually have two introductions. But Leviticus 23 has two introductions. Already that should get your antennas up saying, hmm, something unusual about this. Notice 23 verse 2. Well, the verse 1 is just uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and here's what God says, starting with verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. That's the introduction. Now look at verse 3 and tell me which feast is he introducing here. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work in it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. That's the weekly Sabbath, right? Weekly Sabbath. He introduces the feast and he slips in the weekly Sabbath. Then notice verse 4. Here's the second introduction. These are the feasts of the Lord. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And now the rest of the chapter is talking about the annual Sabbaths. The, the annual festivals. Why two introductions? Why does God separate the weekly Sabbath from the annual festivals. The Sabbaths of the Lord, he calls the weekly ones, from these other convocations. Well, the two introductions don't tell us. It just gets our, our spiritual antennas up to say, hmm, something's different here. There's something to be learned in this chapter by separating these two out. When you get to chapter, uh, get to the end of God's descriptions of the festivals, you get to verse 37. God gives us the clue. 37 and 38 are the principal 
by which I choose whether or not to keep the festivals today, whether these are mandatory today as they were for Old Testament times. Verse 37, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Now this is talking about the annual feast. It's just followed after listing all those annual feasts. These are the feasts of the Lord. And what does it say the purpose of those feasts is? Read on. These are the feasts of the Lord to proclaim to be holy convocations in order to what? Offer sacrifices. Offer offerings made by fire to the Lord. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifice, drink offerings, anything, everything on its own day. What was the purpose of the annual festivals? To offer sacrifices. But then you get to verse 38 and it says, uh, uh, excuse me, God says, in addition to the Sabbaths of the Lord. Now we saw earlier the Sabbaths of the Lord, that was the weekly Sabbaths. Now notice, according to verse 38, the weekly Sabbaths are not linked inextricably to the sacrificial system. It doesn't say, uh, in addition to the Sabbaths of the Lord, which are given in order to offer sacrifices. No, there's no line like that regarding the Sabbaths of the Lord. It says, in addition to the Sabbaths of the Lord, and your gifts, and your vows, and your free will offerings, all of those are things that are not linked to the sacrificial system. Do you hear the point that God's trying to make? The principle he's trying to make? He's trying to say, these annual festivals are linked to the ceremonial sacrificial system. They were to come to the temple. In fact, they had to come to the temple in order to keep these festivals. They couldn't keep it in their homes. They had to go to the temple. They had to go in order to offer sacrifices. It was part of the sacrificial ceremonial system, whereas the Sabbath wasn't. Now, they offered sacrifices on Sabbath. Yeah, Numbers 29 describes the sacrifices that were offered, but they weren't, Sabbath was not linked, was not given in order to do that. That wasn't its basic purpose. Sabbath, as remember, was pointing backwards to creation. It came into existence before sin. It wasn't part of the ceremonial typological system. That's why I believe Adventists have rightly chosen to tell the world about the weekly Sabbath, but not to insist that we keep the ceremonial Sabbaths. Because the ceremonial Sabbaths were part of the ceremonial law that pointed forward to Christ. They were the types that pointed forward to Jesus, the antitype. And when Jesus came as the antitype, as the fulfillment of the types, we're now living in the reality, not in the preview of the reality. And so Adventists have taken the position that the festivals, the annual festivals, are not mandatory for Christians. Now, it's true. These festivals also pointed backward. They were Jewish holidays. Pa Passover, for example, was the holiday. Thank you, that helps. <clears throat> I've been fighting a raspy voice here, so now I can not have to strain quite as bad. But also, I know that if we get warmed up too much, you may have to turn it on again. I realize that eventuality. Uh, Passover, for example was a memorial 
of their coming out of Egypt, right? It was a commemorative holiday, like 4th of July for us. It was a Jewish holiday, a civil holiday. Same of tabernacles. It commemorated their time of being in the wilderness for 40 years. And they celebrated it by coming and staying in, in, in booths for a week every, every year. And if we as spiritual Israel wish to plug into our Jewish heritage, or if Jewish Christians wish to plug into their Jewish heritage, no harm done. In fact, I've been doing it for 30 years. But not because I have to. Not because it's mandatory that Christians, Adventist Christians, keep the feasts. Do you see the, do you see the careful distinction I'm trying to make? Weekly Sabbath, yes. That's going to be the test at the final time. Will we be faithful to God to worship on his day because we trust him, even though we can't prove it by our senses, which is the day to worship him? God said so, and we're doing it because we love him. But he does not say that the Jewish festivals are still to be observed today. That's my view. Some of you may disagree with that, and I'll be happy to uh, dialogue with you when we have a question and answer period during the second hour. So I'm not promoting here, we've got to keep the feasts. I hope you're, you got that message. Neither am I saying that one who chooses to take the opportunity when these feasts come along to meditate on their spiritual significance is inappropriate in doing that. As, as I see it, these festivals are wonderful times not mandatory for us to keep, but times when we meditate upon what God, upon which they pointed, what God has done to which they pointed. That's why I preached the sermon this morning. Thursday was Yom Kippur. And even though Adventists believe that since 1844, every day has been antitypical Yom Kippur. We've been living in the Day of Atonement every day. Still, once a year when Yom Kippur comes along, I like to plug in in a special way to think about the meaning of Day of Atonement for me and the good news of the judgment. So I, I believe there's that fine, balanced position in Scripture that uh, does not promote feast-keeping as, as a mandatory thing for Christians, but neither does it denigrate the festivals as something not worthy of being viewed and experienced. Are you with me on that? Okay, here we go. That's the that's the preliminary. That's the hermeneutical stuff. Now let's get into the into the let's dig into the meat of this chapter. Let's see how this one chapter gives us a a panoramic view of the whole plan of salvation. Well, the Sabbath, weekly Sabbath, we don't need to mention the Sabbath as kicks us into remembering creation and God's whole work of creation. And so the Seventh-day Sabbath is, is there right at the start. But let's start with verse 4, the whole of convocations, the yearly convocations. Now, as a teacher, I would be greatly appreciative of having something to jog our attention here. So let me just flip this around. And we're not going to spend uh, a lot of time on every verse. I just want to give you the big picture so that you can go back and fill in the details yourself. But the first festival came on the first month, which was the month of Nisan. Please do not spell it with two S's. It's Nisan. And it's the 14th day 
of Nisan. It comes in the springtime. And according to the scriptures here, 14th day, verse 5, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Here is Passover. Or in Hebrew, it's called Pesach. Pesach. What I'd like us to explore is how Jesus fulfilled these these typological feasts precisely to the T, right on time. Jesus, you recall, ate his Lord's the Lord's Supper with his disciples, and then he was tried and convicted and taken to Mount Calvary. And it was the fourteenth day of the month, fourteenth day of Nisan, when that happened, when he became the Passover Lamb to die for us. And what time of what time of day did Jesus die? Do you remember? Three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, wasn't it? Now, wait a minute. Verse 5 says, at least in my version here, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Whoops. Sun doesn't go down at three o'clock in the afternoon. What happened here? Well, if you look in the margin, or if you have if you have a Bible with marginal references, it'll say literally, for the word twilight, it'll say literally, between the two evenings. Hmm. Between the two evenings. If you go back to understand what was happening in Jesus' day, the first evening started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's when the evening sacrifice was offered. 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That was the first evening. The second evening came at sundown. And so between the two evenings was between 3 o'clock and sundown. So when did Jesus die? 3 o'clock. Just as the first Passover lamb was being killed in the temple courtyard, Jesus, the Passover lamb, died on the cross right on time. It's awesome. Still today in Israel, there's a little group that still kills the Passover lambs. Not the Jews, because according to the Jewish understanding, you had to bring the lambs to the temple to slay them, and there's no temple. So how can you kill the Passover lamb? So they can't do it. But there's a group of, of uh, men and women up in northern Israel, central Palestine, which are, who are called the Samaritans. You remember the Samaritans from Jesus' day, the Samaritan woman, you know, and he went up to the Sychar there, uh, the well at Sychar, Jacob's well. They still live around there today. There's about 450 of them, 500 or so left today. And they still offer the sacrifice of the Passover at this time. And uh, one of the times that Joanna and I were there in Israel, it was at the height of the Intifada, you know, the battle between the Arabs and the Jews. But they didn't have guns yet. They, the Arabs still had only the stones and the sticks and the Molotov cocktails. So it wasn't, wasn't quite as volatile as it is now. But still dangerous enough. And we wanted to go up there. But the Israeli authorities discouraged it greatly. And the Arab taxi drivers even wouldn't take us up those dangerous roads where the, the stone throwers would, would bash in their cars or break their windows or, or come out and mob the car and flip it over and burn it. You know, there were terrible things that were happening 
And But I wanted to see that Passover. And so we went through a lot of red tape to get per, special permission to go through. And my wife was not too anxious to go up because of the danger and also because she just didn't want to see it. I mean, why would you want to see that? So I twisted her arm harder and harder and harder. And her arm was actually easier to twist than the Arab taxi drivers. They just wouldn't go. Finally, we had to bring out some pretty big, you know, some pretty famous pictures on American bills in order for them to say, well, maybe we'll take you. So we had a group, students got rented three taxis, and they drove at least 80 miles an hour up those winding roads with big Arab flags all over, you know, with the Muslim uh, paraphernalia all over their car so no one would mistake us for Israeli uh, security people or anything. And we zipped through there and made it to the top of uh, Mount Gerizim just, uh, just in time for Passover. We were about the only tourists that made it through that year. There were more Israeli policemen up there guarding the place than there were tourists. And it wasn't a pretty sight, watching 14 lambs, those precious little lambs being held by the children, you know, their their little pets, and then to watch the, the slit of their throats and to watch them slumping into the arms of the priests and then them, uh, you know, taking off the skin of the animal and, it was a gory sight. My wife was so mad that I'd made her come. She didn't speak to me for a week after that. <laughs> I'm lucky she's speaking to me today. But on the way home, we finally talked it through. And a week later, we finally realized why we were both so, so grossed out by it. Why, God, would you would you offer, you know, make them offer these sacrifices? What kind of God is this? And it suddenly struck both Joanne and me about the same time. Yeah, because sin is that awful. Sin is that awful. And God had to find some way to break through our feeble minds before the cross, human minds, to help us see how awful sin is that it cost the life of the innocent Lamb of God. It took us a lot of time to work through with that. But what I learned that night beyond that, when I saw these fire pits, 14 fire pits, and they hung up the lambs there to roast over the fire, according to Exodus 12, they were supposed to roast over the fire. But not one bone was supposed to be broken, and all the organs were supposed to be there. It was supposed to be roasted whole. So how do you do that? The only way to do it is the way that Israel did it for 1,500 years and the Samaritans are still doing it. They put a stick this way to hold the animal op open. They cut the animal open and then they open it up like this and put a stick like this, this way. And so over every one of those fire pits was a lamb roasting on a cross so that Israel for 1,500 years, as they saw the Lamb of God at Passover roasting, they saw their Savior dying, paying the penalty that they deserve, the fires of divine wrath for sin, and the innocent animal took what they deserved so that they could go free. They saw a visual aid of the cross. It was worth going to 
Mount Gerizim for me to get that picture of what God had tried to reveal in every way he could to his people. I'm thankful we live after the cross now. Glad I don't have to sacrifice any more animals. And you know, I've got a well, I, I don't want to get off onto that subject, but I believe we're going to see those lambs again. I've got 20 some different texts that imply, don't prove it, but they imply it, that God's going to raise the animals. And, and Ellen White implies this too, that uh, God's not going to let any of those animals suffer in vain. He's going to, I believe, give a special reward to, to those animals that, that he used to show us the awfulness of sin. So God's going to reverse the curse. And uh, I'm looking forward to see exactly how that's going to work out. So Passover came right on time. Jesus hung on the cross just as the Passover lamb was roasted over the fire on the cross for those 1,500 years. As we go further into Leviticus 23, we notice that on the 15th day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread started. And so verse, uh, uh, days 15 to 21 were seven days of unleavened bread. Leaven being a symbol in Scripture of what? Of sin. Unleavened bread. Jesus, as the bread of life, provided a sacrifice that was totally sinless. Not an ounce, not a molecule, not a, an atom of sin in him. He was free from fermentation of sin. And so this unleavened bread stands for his perfect sacrifice that he gave. And seven, the number of completion. I mean, it was a complete sacrifice, once for all, that was good for eternity. These are the lessons of Passover. Now, look down at verse 10. Speak to the children of Israel and say, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. Okay? The 14th day of Passover was when the lamb was killed. The 15th day was the first Sabbath of the Passover week, ceremonial Sabbath. And then the 16th day was the day after the Sabbath. Jesus dies here, Christ's death. And then he rests on the Sabbath. And then on the 16th was this wave sheaf. Offered as first fruits, a wave sheaf of ripe barley. And the priest would take that barley on the 16th day and wave it before the Lord as the, as the guarantee that the rest of the harvest was going to be ready. What happened on the 16th day after Jesus died? Early in the morning, the great earthquake, and Jesus burst through the portals of the tomb. And there he was in the garden as Mary came looking for him. And all she sees is what she thinks is a gardener. And she turns to the gardener and says, what have you done to my Lord? And she just needs to hear one word from the gardener. The gardener. Mary. Mary. And she recognizes that voice. It was the voice that had cast out seven demons out of her. And she became the first herald of the resurrection. But you remember what she did when, when she heard the word Mary? 
She grabbed a hold of his legs. Didn't want to let him go. She was so thankful to know that he was alive. And Jesus says to her, now some versions really slaughter this. Some English versions say, don't touch me. That's not what the Greek says. Jesus never minded if people touched him. He loved people's touch. The Greek says, and most of the modern versions put it this way, don't detain me. Don't hold me back because I'm heading to my father. And that day he ascended to the throne of God in the heavenly sanctuary. Before God's throne, he waved the wave sheaf of his resurrected body. And the father said, it's enough. The sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice has been made. I have accepted the entire human race in you. And Jesus became the guarantee of the harvest. The harvest of all of you and your friends that have gone on before us that have died. When he comes again, we will be raised. Already glorified. We will be raised to meet the Lord in the air. The harvest is assured. Wow, Jesus fulfilled this right on time. That's Passover and the accompanying events. Going more quickly now to the second major uh, period of time. The third month, which is the month of Sivan. I don't think there's a car by that name yet. Sivan, the sixth day of Sivan. It was 50 days after the day after the Sabbath, 50 days after Passover. You notice it's described here in verse 15. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of waif offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days. And in Greek, the word 50 is Pentecosta. That's the word 50. So Pentecost Let's see, let's fill out the chart here. The wave sheaf was Christ's resurrection. And his ascension, his first ascension, on the day of his resurrection to the Father. Fifty days later came Pentecost. Or in Hebrew it's called Shavuot. Which means Feast of Weeks. Can you read my left-handed scrawl? Your question? Yeah, this is this is the this is the month. First month. I'm not really listing the feasts. I'm just giving them up there. First month, this is the third month, which is the month of Sivan. Yeah. There's really three major feast times, but they had different events that happened in them, so I'm not trying to number them. It would be too confusing. Okay. What happened at Pentecost, according to this text? Verse 17. You shall bring from your habitation two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are first fruits to the Lord. Every Pentecost, they were to take these two loaves. And they were to be baked with 
fine flour. The rabbis tell us that in Jesus' day, they had seven different sifts. If you've ever made flour, you know, you use special baker's flour that's more finely sifted. But in Jesus' day, they sifted it once, and then they took it through a finer sift, and then a finer one, and then a finer one, and then a finer one, until the seventh sift gave the most, the most fluffy flour. If you, I guess, I don't know that's the right word to use. I haven't, it's obvious I haven't baked bread in a while. Never. <laughs> but I've watched my wife do it. <laughs> and she always gets that special fluffy flour. That's not the right word. <laughs> Finely sifted flour. Oh, let's, let's be more careful here. And uh, anyway, the point is the bread is scrumptious, as best as you can possibly give to God. But why does it have leaven? What is this? What, is, what did you tell me leaven represents? Sin? And here we are offering to God bread filled with sin? What? Yeah. That's right. It finally came home to me, meditating on this, on this typology here, that the very best that we can give to God is always tinctured with sin. Isn't that true? Even if the acts are correct, the motives are impure or are filled with sinful nature or have uncon- unknown sins that we don't even know about yet. We can never bring to God something good enough that he can accept us on the basis of our works. Isn't that right? Because our works are never good enough to save us. We wouldn't need a Savior if it were true. And so even at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the, the bread was as good as humans can give to God, it still wasn't enough. It still was filled with leaven. And so the picture has to add one more scene in order to teach the gospel here. It first teaches us about what we give to God. Yeah, we give him our best. We have the spirit that works in us to give our best. But even that best, we can't trust in that as righteousness for us. And so what can we trust in? Notice the picture here in verse 19 and 20. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering. That was the normal offering that was offered for all these festivals. But here's the new part. And two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of peace offering. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. Can you see the picture of what happens in the courtyard there? The priests waving these Loaves of bread, and with them, covering them, each loaf is covered by a lamb. So what is the basis of the acceptance? Is it the loaves? It's the lamb. The beauty of the gospel is taught here, that we are accepted. Even our best efforts are never acceptable to make us righteous before God. It is only on the basis of the blood of the lamb. Two loaves. Can you see two loaves in your mind? Shapes of two loaves. When was the first Pentecost? The first Pentecost. Help me out here. Let me give you a hint. When was the first Passover? 
Egypt, right? Coming out of Egypt. Where were they 50 days later? Sinai. You can actually figure it to the very day, third month, sixth day of the month, they were at Mount Sinai and God was giving the law from Mount Sinai. You see the two loaves? Remember the, the loaves in Scripture represent the tables? Yes. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When did God speak the word out of his mouth and have it shaped like two loaves? It was at Mount Sinai. And so the background, the first Pentecost was Mount Sinai. When you see that and you start linking the Pentecost that we usually think about in Acts 2, you know, the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, put it with Mount Sinai and boom, you start seeing amazing things. Let's see some of the parallels here. Let's just tick them off. On Mount Sinai, the mountain was shaking, it says in Exodus 19. It was quaking. Go to Acts 2. In the upper room, the upper room started shaking. You go to Mount Sinai. The Mount Sinai was on fire. You go to the upper room. Cloven tongues of fire come upon the disciples. On Mount Sinai, God wrote with his finger on tables of stone. And according to the New Testament covenant, he writes at the upper room his, with his finger, the finger of his spirit, by the way. Because in, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, if I do this, then the spirit of God has come upon you. Or if I do this by the spirit of God, and in Luke, the, Luke's version of it, he says, if I do this by the finger of God, the finger and the spirit are equated in the New Testament and in Jesus' mind. So here on Mount Sinai, he writes the law with his own finger on tables of stone, here in the upper room, he writes his law on the fleshly tablets of our heart, the new covenant. And finally, on Mount Sinai, he incorporates his people as his covenant people, his church, his Old Testament church. And in the upper room, he takes the disciples, those that were gathered there, and makes them his New Testament church. Do you see the parallels? Acts 2 is the antitypical Mount Sinai experience. But we uh, we need to just spend just another minute on Pentecost. When you think of the word Pentecost, okay, just do free thinking in your mind. Think of Pentecost. What comes to your mind first? Unity? Holy Spirit. Okay. Let's take that. The one I was looking for was Holy Spirit. It's true that unity happened at Pentecost time, but it was the moment when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. Is that really the ultimate meaning of Pentecost? I used to think so. But you know, the text tells us differently. The text tells us, if you dig deep, that Pentecost is much deeper than the Holy Spirit. Now, I'd like to challenge you with a statement you might not take to unless you come out of a Pentecostal background. But I'd like to suggest that Adventists are the true Pentecostals that we are, shall I put it, the full gospel Pentecostals? Let me explain that. In Acts 2, let's just go Acts 2 quickly. Acts chapter 2. We find, it says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, that was 
fiftieth day, they were all of one accord, and you know the tongues of fire came, and then Peter starts giving his sermon. And at the end of his sermon, here's what he says, verse 33, 32 and 33. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see. Something happened in heaven, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was the earthly sign of what had happened in heaven. What was it that happened? He was exalted as priest-king, as the New Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, priest, king. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 describes that as an anointing with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9. Speaking of the time of the ascension, he says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, more than your companions. Jesus was ascended. He ascended after 40 days, you remember. And then 10 days, while the disciples were in the upper room, up in heaven, they were celebrating. Ellen White describes this in the first chapter of Acts of the Apostles as a great inaugural celebration. I like to call it the greatest inaugural bash in the history of the universe. You know, how many million did Bush spend on his inaugural ball the last time. It was too much, some thought. Well, let's not go into the politics of that. But the one that Jesus will celebrate will be the costliest inaugural celebration in the history of the universe. After all, it cost him his life. And there's ten days of celebrating. And then at the end of those ten days, he will be anointed. He was anointed as priest king. Now, how did that take place? How was the priest, the high priest, anointed in Jesus in, in the Old Testament times? We have an actual eyewitness remembrance of that, or at least an inspired remembrance of that in Psalm 133. That psalm that you may sing about sometimes. Uh, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And it goes on to say, It's like the oil upon the head that flowed down upon the beard. And they would take a ram's horn like this and they would, they would close up, they wouldn't even cut this part and so it would just be hollowed out and could fill with oil. They took this special perfumer's oil that was only made for this occasion. Wonderful aroma. You can read the recipe in, in, the, in the Pentateuch. And at the appropriate time, they would pour the oil. They poured the oil upon whose head? Who was the first high priest? Aaron, it says. It is like the oil upon the head that poured down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and off the hems of his garments, it says. Can you picture this? Can you picture this in heaven? What it might have been like when Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness, the oil of the Spirit, with the heavenly shofar. I don't know what that would be. Filled with oil. Can you see on that 50th day at Pentecost, the oil pouring down upon Jesus' head, down upon his beard and off his robes, and down onto the ground of heaven? And then it didn't stop there. It just kept right on flowing. 
from heaven to earth. And on the way between heaven and earth, it was ignited into tongues of fire. And what the disciples received on earth was the earthly sign of the descending oil. The sign that they had a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Was that good news for them? They had a mediator to mediate for them to cover for their sins and to lead them in the life of sanctification. Great news. And so the disciples went out with power. Yes, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't ever point toward himself. Who does the Holy Spirit always point to? To Jesus. We can read that in Jesus' final message in John 14 to 17. The Spirit testifies of me. So that's why I call Adventists the full gospel Pentecostals. We believe in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the early rain and the latter rain, but we don't get hung up on the Holy Spirit part. We get focused upon what the Holy Spirit points to, which is Jesus, our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. The Pentecostals have missed that. They've missed the point. And Adventists have the privilege of sharing that full gospel Pentecostal message. And I wish sometimes we could get as excited about it as the Pentecostals do. Because we have more to share than they have to share. In fact, I'm going to give you an opportunity to get excited about it. Because I'm going to shift very quickly now. Pentecost, Holy Spirit. and the inauguration of Christ as high priest. That's the spring festivals, and they came in fulfillment right on time. Now in the fall, you got the seventh month. This is the month of Tishri. And the first day of the month was Feast of Trumpets. The Jews called it, call it today Rosh Hashanah. And that was a week ago last Tuesday, Rosh Hashanah, first day of the seventh month. And Seventh-day Adventists believe that this pointed forward to the time. Well, first of all, what happened on this time? This was when the trumpet was blown, when the shofar was blown to call the people to Yom Kippur, to get ready for Yom Kippur. For 10 days, the shofar would blow, and I blow it to wake those up who may be enjoying their sound sleep here. (coughs) Works every time. You know, that's one thing about having a shofar. You can just blow it when you want to, when you get bored. I mean, when everyone's getting bored by what you say, you can at least make sure they wake up with the sound of the shofar. Um, And this is blown in the synagogue today a hundred times. Every day, for 10 days, 100 times, the Rosh Hashanah. It was the call to judgment. And Adventists believe that in those years, those basically those 10 years before 1844, there was a call that went out to the whole world. William Miller preached it here. The Millerites preached it in America. Joseph Wolfe preached it over in Asia and in the Middle East. Uh, Lacunza preached it down in South America. 
I've been intrigued by going to different places around the world and find, finding that this was being preached by people I never knew preached it. For example, down in Australia, there was a group, there was an aboriginal prophet that wasn't even a Christian that rose at time of 18, just before 1844 and started preaching about the judgment. There's a, an Eskimo prophet, wasn't a Christian, didn't even know about Jesus, but started preaching about the judgment and about the Sabbath just in the years before 1844. And in Scandinavia, it wasn't allowed for adult preachers to preach, and so the children broke out into preaching mode and started crying out, the hour of his judgment has come. It was the great Advent awakening that swept the entire world, preparing them for the coming of Yom Kippur. We call it the first angel's message. And then the seventh month, the tenth day of the month of Tishri is Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And as you know, as we discussed this morning, since October 22, 1844, Jesus has been engaged in a work of vindicating his people, the good news of Yom Kippur that we talked about this morning. And when that's finished, what will be the, the wind-up of Yom Kippur? What happens at the end of Day of Atonement? Yeah, Leviticus 25 says the Jubilee trumpet will blow. And we know what that is. It's the sounding of the trumpet of Michael, the archangel. It's described in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's the fulfillment of the last trump, the great trumpet, the shofar blowing calling the dead to life. And the, the second coming is described there in this, in this chapter. And then comes the leading of the scapegoat out into the wilderness, right? And how is that fulfilled? Revelation 20. What is it's the millennium. As Satan is led to spend a thousand years contemplating all the mess that he made on this earth. And then at the end of the millennium, the final festival takes place. What do we call that one? The one that hasn't yet been fulfilled. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, exactly. The 15th day to the 22nd day is called <clears throat> Feast of Tabernacles. Or the Jews call it Sukkot. And this will be at the end of the millennium when we can experience our being taken into our harvest home. The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and God cries out to John, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Right? Now, as I said earlier, I don't believe it's mandatory for anyone to keep any of these feasts today. But if you do want to keep one, and it's optional, there's one I'd recommend. If you'd want to celebrate one, it would be the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I probably wouldn't have had the courage to say that with such forcefulness if it weren't for the fact that 
As a young pastor doing my devotions one day, I came across a statement in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 541, Patriarchs and Prophets, 540, 541, where Ellen White writes, well would it be, and notice she didn't say, hey, you got to keep the festival. Well would it be, hey, it'd be a good idea, a lot of fun, for the people of God at the present time, hey, now, to have a Feast of Tabernacles. doesn't say keep the Feast of Tabernacles, but have a Feast of Tabernacles because it's still pointing forward. Why not plug into our, to our roots and celebrate the joy in advance of that experience that's coming in the, in the soon by and by? And so uh, Ellen White suggested camp meetings were one way. We, and, and James White, when he'd get up to introduce the camp meetings. He'd, I'd hear, I understand that he'd come thumping up the aisle, thumping on his Bible, you know, singing hymns. And then he'd get up there and say, it's time for the feast! And he'd introduce the Feast of Tabernacles. And they camped for about seven days during that time, seven to ten days. They did about what the Israelites did. Southern California doesn't have a camp meeting anymore, do they? Uh, a ten-day camp meeting? You do a weekend thing, maybe here or there, once in a while. Uh, so you know, if it's going to happen, maybe we better do it now. How about a little taste of Feast of Tabernacles, just to just to give you a little taste? You know when Feast of Tabernacles starts this year? It's next Tuesday. You invited me right on time. So if you choose to experience the joy, sanctuary joy of a Feast of Tabernacles. I'd like to just give you a little savor of what it was like in Jesus' day. Are you ready? You want to do a little bit? We're not going to do the whole thing because I want to save something for you to do starting next Tuesday. But I want to give you a little taste of Feast of Tabernacles. Well, are you eligible? It says here, Leviticus 23. By the way, I didn't get your permission. Do you have your, do I have your permission to just do a little, little feeling of Feast of Tabernacles for a few minutes? Can we do that? All right. Any objections? Objection overruled. Okay. No. All right. Uh, I'm not a judge. Leviticus 23. It says in verse, uh, 39. And on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord. You notice it doesn't even mention it here what name of it is. In verse 34, it calls it the Feast of Tabernacles, but later it just says the feast. And in Jesus' day, when you said, let's go to the feast, there was only one feast that was like that. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the greatest thing going. And so it says they shall come for, for eight days and celebrate the feast. And uh, it mentions here, uh, verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Now that brings a little slight problem here. Any, any native Israelites around? I know a few of you have a little Jewish blood in you. I don't have any. But wait a minute. How about Galatians 3:29? If you be Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That makes us all spiritual Hebrews, right? So we all have the right to plug in to our heritage and to keep the feast. And so uh, let's get in our time machine. And let's go back and just celebrate a feast 
savor a little of the Hebrew joy and vigor and enthusiasm of the feast as it was in Jesus' day. Um, let's go to 30 AD. That was Jesus' last Feast of Tabernacles. And let's go to Jerusalem. So get in your time machine, your space machine. We head to Jerusalem. In fact, just to get you into the spirit of this, we're all a group of pilgrims, different groups of pilgrims that are on our way to Jerusalem. And I'm going to make you get out of your stupor now. Uh, I'd like to just invite you to stand up. All of us stand. And... Imagine that you're coming from one of the parts around Jerusalem. In fact, I recognize some of you. You were in in Jericho, didn't you? You're coming from Jericho. This is, must be your family from Jericho. Boy, I'm glad that you're on your way to the feast. I'm glad to see this group. And and here's a group. Aren't you from the from the south down in Beersheba? Oh, absolutely. Man, you've been a long way traveling. I'm so glad you've made it. You're heading to the feast. It's great. And where's a group? I see a group from. I think, aren't you from the, from the north up until Dan? You've been traveling for two weeks or so, camping and, and singing and enjoying it. Have you had a good time traveling all right? And there's another group here. You're from the, let's see, what's left? The, uh, the west, from Joppa. Yeah, okay. All right, this group from the west and this group from the south and the east and the north. Yes? We can mention that, yes, right. But we all made it. Now, you've got to get into the feel of it. We're marching. We're, we're on our way to Jerusalem, to Zion. Can you feel that? Let's sing about it. That's what they did when they were heading to Jerusalem, right? We've got a good song that describes that. It's called, We're Marching to Zion. And you don't have to turn to 422 because you know the first verse without turning. And no piano, please, because you couldn't have a piano when you were walking to Jerusalem. So we've got to do it a cappella. Here we go. Come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song of sweet accord. Join in a song of sweet accord. Join us around the throne and thus around the throne. We're marching. Come on. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion, we're marching upward to Zion, that beautiful city of God. And by some strange twist of providence, we've all arrived at the same time on one of the seven hills around Jerusalem. And we look down, there's the white marble walls of that temple. And who is that? That figure there, that white-robed figure what does he have in his hand? Yes, you guessed it. It's a shofar. <laughs> and he's calling us to the feast. Now, you you know, I love to blow this thing. <laughs> Some of you may have heard that the students at Andrews once were making spoofs on us professors, you know, on our weak points and making books out of those weak points. And so uh, the book they chose for me that I wrote, supposedly, was entitled Shofar Show Good. <laughs> And the subtitle was A Guide to Tooting Your Own Horn. <laughs> well, okay, that put me back a few weeks blowing this, but I have, I'm right back at it again, so I, I can't help it. And when I blow the shofar, your response is to be what the children of Israel did in Jesus' day. After they heard the call of the shofar, they would all cry out. We practiced this morning, Hosanna, 
Hosanna. A threefold Hosanna. So let me blow it, and then let's break the roof off with hearty Hosannas. Not Pentecostal style, Old Testament style, which was more vigorous than the Pentecostals, I think. Okay. What's the next thing we have to do? We're supposed to gather branches. Remember it says here in Leviticus 23 that we were to gather leafy branches of palm branches and other branches and bring them and build booths. Well, I happen to be prepared. I've got my palm branch. You go get one now. No, <laughs> You can do it on Tuesday. Before Tuesday, you can. And I'm thankful to my brother here who happened to uh, go home. He lives five minutes away and he cut one of his precious fronds so that I could hold a palm branch. You know, I can't do this in Michigan. These things don't exist in Michigan. So I have to hug my palm branch. (laughs) California is a great place for many things. And one of them is to have these. And can you imagine everyone cutting a palm branch and then building over us? A beautiful booth so that we'd all be dwelling under our booth. And then throughout the week, cutting extra palm branches that we'd wave and sing. And what would we shout? Hosanna! Hosanna! Whoa! All night long, festivities would go on at the temple. Now I'm going to let you sit down. If you don't promise not to go sleep on me in the next ten minutes. And, yes, wonderful food. We'll get to that. And just imagine that over every one of us is one of these palm branches and that we are in our booth, okay? And back to Leviticus 23, our trusty guide. Uh, Do you have a favorite command? Now, I know everyone has favorite promises, but how about you have a favorite command of the Bible? Is that a little strange thought for you? You know what I tell you my, my favorite command is? It's Leviticus 23 and verse 40. Now it says, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook. Here's now, here's my favorite command. And you shall rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Now isn't that a command you can say, Yeah, that's my command. You shall rejoice. Remember we said last night there were 91 of these days that God set aside for us to rejoice. But the best of all of them was tabernacles. You shall rejoice for seven days. It says in verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. Why? Verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths. It pointed backward to when the children of Israel were living in booths there in the wilderness, in tents, and, and in which God covered them with his booth, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. But it also pointed forward. According to Amos chapter 9, verse 11, you can look it up later, it says that when the Messiah comes, he will restore the booth of David. It uses the same word, the tabernacle of David. The Messiah was going to come and be a tabernacle. 
In fact, when Jesus came, remember John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But you look in the margin, it doesn't say dwelt. It says boothed among us, tabernacled among us. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. When was Jesus born? Ever stop to figure that out? Let me give you two texts from which you can derive the data that you need to figure when Jesus was born. I can't give you the exact date, but I can give you the time of year. Here's the two texts. First Chronicles chapter 24 and Luke chapter 1. Just write those two texts in your mind or on paper and you can figure out the rest. Let me give you a hint. Here's how to, here's how to figure it. Luke chapter 1 tells us that Zechariah was a priest. Remember Zechariah, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist? Zechariah was a priest, and it says he was of the order of Abijah. There were 24 courses of priests. And Abijah, according to 1 Chronicles 24, was the eighth order of priests. Eighth one. And according to the Mishnah and the Talmud, in Jesus' day, each one of these orders served for one week in the temple, except during the time of the high feasts when they all served. So, and they started in the springtime, beginning of the beginning of Nisan. So that means when Zechariah was there, and it specifically says in Luke 1 that he was there serving with his course of priests. So we know it was at that time that he was there. So that means eight weeks after the beginning of the spring in that year, and then you add two more weeks to for the weeks for the weeks that they were all serving at Pentecost and at Passover, that takes you, if you calculate it out into modern calendar time to about the middle to the end of June when Zechariah was there in the temple. And the angel comes and says, hey, Zechariah, Elizabeth's going to get pregnant. And he says, what? I don't believe that. Boom, he's struck dumb. You remember the story? He finally believes. And God, through Gabriel the angel, says, tell Zechariah, Zechariah, go home. And right away, the Greek is very definite on this, right away, she's going to get pregnant. So he goes home after his serving for his week in the temple, about the end of June, last week of June. Elizabeth gets pregnant. Now, how many months later did Mary get pregnant? The same chapter, Luke 1, says six months later she got pregnant. That takes us to the end of December, right around the 25th of December. Hey, December 25 is a great date. We just have the wrong event. Instead of saying Merry Christmas, you should turn to one another and say, Happy Conception Day. <laughs> Happy Conception Day. Because that's when Jesus was conceived, around Christmas time, around the Feast of Lights time. The light of the world became flesh at that time. Then you count a full gestation term of nine months, and it brings you to the end of September, which is the normal time for Feast of Tabernacles. And so Jesus was born at this time of year. And so I invite you to turn to one another with great joy and say to one another, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's what it is. This is Jesus' birthday this time of year. Merry Christmas. <laughs> okay. That's why we got to celebrate. It's his birthday. The season of his birthday, I can't tell you the exact date, but sometime around this time of year was his birthday. Now, 
What they do at Tabernacles in Jesus' day? Let me just paint a couple of quick pictures here for you. There were two main festivals that took place. Besides the eating, God said, bring all the wonderful food and you can eat all you can hold and all the great food. Just enjoy yourselves. So starting next Tuesday, no diets after next Tuesday. You've got one week where you don't have to be on a diet. You know, just not, I'm not saying gorge, but enjoy. Enjoy those rich, glorious foods. Maybe not the rich, but the glorious foods that God has given us here. Uh, and there's lots of singing and all the rest. They read the Torah through. Every seven years, they'd read the whole Torah at Feast of Tabernacles time. So if you don't have anything else to do, you can start right after this meeting and start reading from Genesis 1 and get to by, by maybe by the end of next, a week from next Tuesday, you'll be at the end of Deuteronomy. That'd be a great activity you could do on this Feast of Tabernacles. I'm not going to talk about any of those things, but the two things I want to just paint for you before we close our meeting here. The first one was the water ceremony. It took place early in the morning. And I won't bore you with another shofar blast, but God told the priests to wake up the sleeping saints that were sleeping on the hillsides. There's about a million and a half of them in Jesus' day, according to Josephus' account. And the shofar blew, and the people woke up on the hillsides to see the priest carrying a pitcher of empty pitcher, silver pitcher, down. No, wait, it was a golden goblet, excuse me, not silver, gold, made out of gold, about a pint and a half carrying it down to the pool of Siloam. And there he dipped the pitcher in the pool of Siloam. And the choir started singing from Isaiah chapter 12. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. And he carried the pitcher up to the, to the altar of burnt offering. And there was another pitcher filled with grape juice. And he would pour the water and the grape juice together. And it mingled together in a special spout and went down under the temple a subterranean channel, and flowed out to the east. Let's see, north, east is this way, right? Am I right? Flowed out to the east to the, pool, to the uh, Kidron River and then flowed down the Kidron River, down through the wilderness of Judea to the Dead Sea, to the lowest spot on earth. And that happened every morning. And all during that last week of Feast of Tabernacles, the people were dazzled by this spectacle. And they'd ask the priest, what does it mean? And the priest would say, come on, you stupid people. Don't you know what it means? You know, the water that came out of the rock. And we're celebrating the water pouring out of the rock. They say, yeah, we understand that. But what about the grape juice? Why do you pour the grape juice and it mixes together and goes down to the lowest spot in the earth? And they say, don't ask stupid questions. We don't know. We've always done it this way. I'm perhaps putting a few words in the priest's mouth. I don't know that they said exactly that, but that's possible. The last day of the feast, when they were pouring the grape juice and water together, in the dazzling silence of that moment, Jesus' voice could be heard breaking the silence. If any man thirst, let him come unto me, and out of him will flow rivers of living Just a few weeks later, he hung on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he died. And the soldier took that spear and thrust it in his side and out of his side flowed water and blood. And it mingled down the cross 
And it flowed down to the lowest sinner on earth, to you and to me, and brought life. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And the rabbi said, if you've never seen the water ceremony, you don't know what it is to be happy. And as Christians, we can say, if you've never tasted the river of the water of life, you don't know what it is to be happy. Have you tasted that water? And then the light ceremony was just as spectacular. Every night, there were these two giant lampstands in the courtyard of the women. They were 75 feet high. And the priests, children, the PKs, you know, would climb those, those tall lampstands with 15 gallons of oil and pour into the tops of those lampstands and then take a big torch and And the rabbis that wrote it down, their eyewitness testimony said that every courtyard in Jerusalem was lit with those giant lamps. And the Jews knew what that stood for. The Messiah was going to come. He was going to be the light of the Jews to overcome the Romans and to take over the world. So all week went by and the lamps were lit every night and Jesus never spoke that last Feast of Tabernacles because he was more than the light of the Jews. And he waited until the very last ceremony of the feast. On the eighth day, just as they were taking the booths down, ready to go home, as the, as the sun was about to arise that eighth morning, the priest once again with the blowing the blasts of shofar horn, made their way over to the edge of the Temple Mount, to the section there where the Golden Gate was. And they waited, watching for the sun to rise. And just before the sun came up over the horizon, they said, Our fathers worshipped with their backs to the temple and their faces to the rising sun. They worshipped the sun. But Lord, our eyes are on you. And they turned around, had it timed just right, so that as they turned around, the first rays of the sun would gleam down upon the white marble walls of that glorious temple. And it was at that moment, Ellen White tells us, that Jesus broke the silence and said, I am the light, not just of the Jews, I am the light. So you can see that Jesus fulfilled partially the imagery of the Feast of Tabernacles. But you know, he only fulfilled it partially in his first coming because as we see here, the ultimate Feast of Tabernacles is yet to come. I like to put it this way. There's a camp meeting in the promised land and it's coming soon. And there's going to be the light ceremony there. Except not just a couple of measly 75-foot lampstands in the court of the women. It says in Revelation 21, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its light. And the water ceremony is going to be there, but not just a, a measly pot of golden pot of water. It says there will be a river of living water flowing from the throne of God. And the waving of palm branches will be there. Read about it in Revelation chapter 7. We and the saints will wave palm branches again at Feast of Tabernacles. And the New Jerusalem will come down, as we've already mentioned, and 
the voice will say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And there will be a feast there. That silver table that will be miles long. And yet we'll have eyesight to be able to see the very length of it, as Ellen White puts it there in early writings. And There will be all the fruit from the tree of life and the manna and all the precious fruits that only heaven knows how to make so delicious. And we'll get to sit down at that table and Jesus will gird himself with the servant's apron and he will serve us. What a feast. There's just one question left. Will you be there? Will I be there? You know, the Bible, the last two chapters of Revelation are, are written in the language of the Feast of Tabernacles. You read it sometime in light of what you've heard here these few minutes, you'll see that Tabernacles jumps out at you everywhere in this language of Revelation 21 and 22. And the final appeal of the Bible is written in the language of the water ceremony. Notice Revelation 22 and verse 17. Revelation 22:17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Have you accepted that water of life today, every day? You know, our Jewish brothers and sisters, shortly after Jesus died, 30, 40 years later, they saw their temple destroyed and they saw their kingdom disintegrate, their national dreams evaporate, and they were sent as hunted victims into the diaspora around the world. For nearly 2,000 years, for many of those years, our Jewish brothers and sisters have kept these feasts in prisons or in caves or in mountain hideaways. But they've somehow always managed to keep them. And when they have finished keeping a Feast of Tabernacles all through those thousands of years, tradition tells us that they would turn to one another the end of the feast, and they'd say, next year, Jerusalem. Next year, we're going to keep this feast in Jerusalem. Would you like to join me in making a similar choice by the grace of God that we could choose that not one of us will be missing in that feast of tabernacles in the promised land? If this is your choice, I'd invite you just to Turn to your neighbor and just say, by the grace of God, next year, the new Jerusalem. Now, I'm not setting dates, okay? I'm not saying he's going to come next year, although it could happen. But very soon, next year, the new Jerusalem. Could you make that covenant with one another here if that's your desire as we close off this session? Next year, new Jerusalem. Amen. Can we bow our heads for prayer? Father, I thank you for all of these festivals. On one short, well, not so short, page of the Bible, you have given in advance the whole plan of salvation. 
We've seen the fulfillment of each step as it has unfolded. And now we're poised for the last steps. We're, we're, we're lonely for heaven, God. We're lonely to come and celebrate the, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Feast of Tabernacles for eternity. And you've heard our, our declaration. We can't, we can't uh, bring this about on our own. But by your grace, you've heard our choice. We choose to accept this water of life every day, the rest of our lives, and to by, by your grace to be there in that camp meeting in the promised land. And Lord, so we want you just to hear our prayer and then hear one more shout of that great shout that will be the redeemed shout for eternity of Hosanna. And all the people said, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Amen.